Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you've been following the news, I'm going to ask you really to be in prayer for the people of Japan. It's, uh, my heart was so heavy watching the news this week because I know that there are so few people in that country who know Jesus Christ, and so that loss of life weighs even more heavily on my heart thinking about that. What an, an amazing opportunity for those who love Christ in that country to shine and make much of Jesus. The word of God this morning comes from Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to verse 44. The title of the message is The Feeding of the 5,000. The Feeding of the 5,000. And it's, uh, it's one of the most significant stories in the New Testament. In fact, it's the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle that, that has that distinction. So it's a very important one. And there are so many things that we can learn from this particular miracle. But I felt as I was preparing for this message that the Lord was focusing my attention on, on a couple particular aspects. And so I, ironically... I'm going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000, a miracle in which Jesus feeds a huge crowd with a little boy's lunch. You guys know the story. But I'm going to talk very little about the actual feeding of the 5,000. And, and I feel like the Lord wants uh, us to think more about what we learn from the way Jesus lives life and does ministry. And I, I really believe that each one of us here has a personal ministry. Now, for some, that ministry is going to have a decidedly religious flavor. You're going to teach the Bible or feed the hungry. There will be some kind of sense in which what you're doing feels like traditional ministry. But for many of us, our ministry is also going to be the way that we love our next-door neighbor or raise our children in the way of Christ. This personal ministry we have to other people is a huge part of our calling. And I think there are a lot of things we learn from Jesus' example in this miracle that should inspire and instruct us in the way that we also do our own ministries. Now, I'm going to ask you, because I'm just looking around the room. Um, I, don't, I don't know what, what exactly was going on, but I, I want to ask if you would just kind of reach your hand to your neighbor and just pinch their shoulder a little, remind them that even with one hour less of sleep, we are here together in the Lord. Some of you are looking like zombies. I, I don't know if you guys have tattooed eyes on your eyelids and are actually sleeping, but let's, let's really get into the Word of God this morning. Let's read together what it says. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, <clears throat> Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, 
That would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. I love the illustration Heath has done this week. It's of a guy having eaten his full, his fill, leaning against a tree, picking his teeth. That's a very Asian thing. You know, you've all seen your dads do this, right? Break the chopstick and pick their teeth. And that's a sign that I have had more than enough. More than enough. Well, this story teaches us a few very important things about the way Jesus did life and ministry, things that we can learn from. And the first principle, I think, uh, I didn't word this too cleverly. I, I'm just going to give you some phrases that I hope will reverberate in your mind and your memory. And the first is a ministry of interruptions, a ministry of interruptions. How many of you guys like being interrupted? Anyone? How many of you guys like when your phone rings unexpectedly at weird times? Some people are lonely, so they love it when their phone rings. But the truth is, most of us don't welcome that kind of unexpected intrusion into our life and rhythm. In the early part of Jesus' ministry, he sent out his 12 disciples, uh, basically on a trip to travel throughout the region, armed with spiritual authority and power. They packed very light, and they traveled to the villages in the area, ministering to people, proclaiming repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God. And then what they did was they healed people and they met their earthly needs. Now, you can imagine they returned from this trip excited. This was the first short-term mission trip and the people were giddy. with emo- they, they were like, I can't believe, Lord, what happened? We were out there saying the stuff that you usually say and the demons were fleeing at our command. What is going on? And so, you know, I don't know if you've ever had like little kids come up to you after a trip and they're just chattering all at once. You're like, hey, 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 one at a time, slow down. When we're excited, we just want to unload everything. We don't process. And so that's what's going on. And in the backdrop of all that, while these disciples were on their mission trip, John the Baptist, Jesus' relative, was beheaded <coughs> Excuse me, by the king. And he was beheaded because he had publicly criticized the king's illegitimate marriage to his brother's wife. It was something that should not be done. It was something that should engender great shame. And John the Baptist, alone among the religious leaders, publicly criticized what he was doing. And as a result of that, he lost his head. He was beheaded for it. And so you can imagine now the setting that we find ourselves in in Mark chapter 6. And so you can imagine the scene. There's a lot of tension coiled up among this band of followers of Christ. There's this need to spill over all the testimony and exciting news of this mission trip, but there's also this need to grieve and to reflect on the fact that the mission to which they were called was a very dangerous mission. It was the kind of mission where when you stuck your neck out, it might just get cut right off. Knowing that people would prefer to do than to think or reflect, Jesus called his disciples away and said, Listen, guys, I know you're excited. I know you've got a lot weighing your heart down. 
Right now, what we need is to get away to a quiet place, slow everything down, get a little rest, and just reflect on what's going on. Now, right there, that might be all the sermons some of you in this room need to hear, is that you're going through so much and there's noise everywhere, possibilities, needs, desires, wishes, pressures, and your life is a boiler room right now, isn't it? And the thing that Jesus might be calling you to is stop complaining, stop worrying, stop talking to a thousand different people at the coffee shop and get away by yourself in a place of quiet. Slow down and just listen to me. Decompress, process everything, and I will speak into your life. Wisdom, stability, peace. So that's what he's doing. And so there they are, gathered around him. He gets in a boat and he says, let's head over to that quiet country near what is today known as the Golan Heights. A beautiful hilly and mountainous country right off the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So there was a lot of water supply and it was a particularly lush and green area, especially right now in the springtime when the story takes place. And so he intends to take them to the lush countryside for a private retreat. But here's the thing. Because of the public nature of their recent ministry, Jesus and his group of followers are becoming very popular. It's not every day that somebody walks through your town, waves their hand, and sick people are healed, and demon-possessed people are freed of their oppression. And so they were the talk of the town. And seeing Jesus and his band of followers get into this boat, the people said, we can't let them get away. So they chased them, and they literally banded together and ran around the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee and intercepted Jesus and his crew at their landing site. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel the tension of that situation. And I know most of you have been in that place as well. You've got everything set up. Maybe you've got your nachos. The cheese is just perfect. You know, it's a little oozy. It's not hardened yet. And you've got a nice cold beverage, maybe in a long neck bottle, sitting on your coffee table. The game is about to start. Everybody's quiet. Your wife is going to leave you alone. If you have a wife, you know, that's a golden thing when the game is starting. Everyone's going to... Leave him alone. He needs to decompress. And you know that right now is me time. I just need a little time to get everybody out of here and just be by myself. And then the phone rings. And you look on the caller ID because who doesn't have caller ID today? And there's that name. The person who every time they call you, it's not to bless you but to get something from you. Another need, another crisis, another emergency. And just when you're settling down to take care of you because you sorely need a little bit of R&R, here comes another person saying, hey, I'm sorry to bother you. Did I catch you at a bad time? Why do they ask? You're not going to go, yeah, actually, it's a cruddy time. Could you please have your crisis sometime else? We never say, yes, it's a bad time because we're good people. And so we say, go ahead, what what is it? Maybe through the tension in your voice, they'll, they'll get the message, it better be really important. But, you know, when the human heart is in trouble, it reaches out. They say, for example, and I had this experience, when people are drowning, you don't want to get too close to them because they will use you as a life preserver. When a person is drowning, they don't really understand that it might cost you your life. They're just trying to breathe. I tried to, I tried to actually rescue a girl who was drowning in Lake Michigan when I was in college, and she almost drowned. She's a pretty... Uh, um, Strong girl. She's about three inches taller than me. And she almost killed me. I actually had to punch her in the face. I, I'm not proud of this, but 
I thought we were both going to die. So I had to calm her down. And she, she kind of calmed down. And then we brought her to a sandbar. So that was an exciting little adventure in my life. But I learned something about people who are desperate to survive, to breathe, to get some air. They're not thinking about whether it's going to infringe on you. They just need. And that's fair because I've been there too, haven't you? So you know that feeling when you just really, really need to unwind and here they come again, intruding on your space. Sunday afternoons, Monday's my day off. Those are golden times where I'm just like, oh, please let nothing happen. But invariably, something does. Now, I'm not bitter about that because I've also learned something else that Jesus, I think, is trying to teach us here. There's tension in a moment like that. You really, really do need to have that time. And it's so hard to take care of others when you need to take care of you. Don't get me the wrong way. I'm not for a moment suggesting that self-care is trivial and unimportant. It should be a priority for us regularly to seek out solitude and quiet in our lives. But let me tell you something. Sometimes the sovereign God will intrude upon your meticulously planned me time and call upon you to give to somebody else. It doesn't take God by surprise. He doesn't need caller ID to know this is coming. It's all part of his unfolding plan. And he knows that you need to take care of you. But there are times when someone else's need outweighs your own. And he's saying, I'm teaching you to be like me at those moments. Please don't misunderstand. I think boundaries are important. I think there are times when you are at such a crisis point, you can't possibly be of any good to others. And there are going to be rare times when you need to say, I'm very sorry, I want to help you, but I think I may do you more harm than good right now. But even having said that, I'm going to ask us all together to pay very close attention when God lets somebody else intrude upon time that we had reserved for ourselves. I really believe that those moments are opportunities where God is inviting us to watch him go to work and experience a miracle happening through us. It's been my experience that when I willingly go with God in those moments, and you know, I mean, I was just talking to uh, Pastor Alan Eaton, who's, who's a member of our church, and he's, he, was, he's a, uh, he serves as a chaplain for the police and fire department in Hoffman Estates. And, and he's not a... a a night person, he's a morning person, he goes to bed early, rises at some ungodly hour. But there are times when, because of the nature of his work, he gets a phone call when he's already curled up in bed. And I can appreciate how hard it is to pick up the phone. You might start questioning your own ministry, calling the wisdom of this course in life. And, and yet, when we respond to God in those moments, sometimes he lets us witness something that is nothing less than miraculous. We become part of something that we can't imagine we could be part of. We witness the power of God in ways we never thought was possible. I think it's a running biblical theme that in our weakness, God will display His strength. So at those moments when you feel like I've got nothing to give you, I think those are God's invitations to say, well, guess what? You never have anything to give anyone. Even at your best, if you think you're giving of yourself, you are so deluded. 
It is in your moments of greatest emptiness and weakness that God is making the point, it was never you, it was never going to be you or your wealth of resources and grace. It was always going to be what I provide through you. And it is when we minister at the edge and the end of our rope that we're forced to say, God, I got nothing. Come work through me. And then he does. I think this is the glory of the ministry of interruptions. Is that to us it's an interruption because we had a plan. But God's plan is greater than our plan. And in God's mind, it is no interruption at all. It is the next chapter in the story he's writing in our lives. Now, I know for those of us who need a great deal of homeostasis and control in our lives, this is a very threatening message to hear. You're annoyed by what I'm saying. You wish I would stop talking, leave you alone. But I really believe that the glory of God is made known in the ministry of interruptions. And I want to encourage you this week to be very alert the next time somebody intrudes upon that space which you had carved out just for you, could it be that an all-knowing God is inviting you into something important where in your weakness, He intends to show His great strength? I just feel the displeasure radiating up here. I feel it. It's not me you're mad at. Let me give you a second point here. And that is, I see this very strong theme of taking personal responsibility for the needs of others. It says, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. See, Jesus, instead of pushing away the crowds, he was moved with compassion, and he does ministry. Now, I don't know if you know what ministry time is, okay? Um, but I, I used to go every year to the One in Love Conference in Montrose, Pennsylvania, where we would, the pastors would be called upon to have ministry time. Let me describe ministry time to you we would be compelled to stay up until like 2 or 3 in the morning, praying together, talking with the other pastors, catching up on life and ministry. And then we'd be rudely awakened at 5.30 a.m. every day for early morning prayer. So operating about two hours of sleep a night, uh, we would be doing this preaching, teaching, prayer ministry during free time at the One in Love Conference. I don't know why, why they call it free time. It's just non-preaching time. Um, they say, we're going to pray for the students that are gathered there. And you go into the open area, and there's about anywhere from five to 700 students, all hunched down on their knees, praying to God, beating their chest, crying out for God. And we, 30 or so pastors, are to fan out through the room and just lay our hands, pray for them, fight on our, on our knees with them. It is exhausting, man. Each one of us has to cover like 20 students. And these are not simple things. And we're talking about heavy burdens. That's ministry time. And around the end of those times, all you're thinking is, please, Jesus, just come back now. I really need to take a break. And so that's what's going on. At the moment they wanted to rest, God called them again to do ministry, and they are just pushing it out. The sun is starting to set. When it says that there were 5,000 men, it was Hebrew custom not to count women and children when numbering a crowd. It's pretty uh, sexist and ageist. I don't know what's wrong with them, but... So it's a fair conservative estimate that the total crowd numbered anywhere from 15,000 to 20,000 people. Perhaps the entire membership of Willow Creek gathered in one place. It was an awesome spectacle. That many people gathered, and they're doing ministry, and the disciples are going, wow, it's getting late. Jesus doesn't look like he intends to slow down. We don't have what he has. He's going to kill us. 
So they all make a huddle and they go, you go talk to him. And so one of them comes up and says, Lord, listen, um, I know you love people and everything, but it's getting late. We can hear the collective grumbling of their stomachs. The people look hungry. Shouldn't we do something? Now, I don't know about you, but if you look out at a crowd of 20,000 people and you know they're hungry and tired and they need something, do you want to take responsibility for that? How many of you people, I mean, maybe a few of you crazy people in the food ministry are like, ooh, I'd love to. That's nuts. I would not want responsibility for feeding 20,000 people. That just makes me crazy. So they, they come up with a very reasonable solution. Listen, Lord, why don't we dismiss for the evening and just tell them all to scatter into the nearby villages and rustle up something to eat? In my mind, that is a very reasonable suggestion. And some of you are thinking, yeah, what's wrong with that? That seems like the most efficient, reasonable course of action. That's not really the plan that Jesus has for these guys or for this crowd. Listen to what he says. He says, but he answered, you give them something to eat. I just hate that. I hate it so much because (laughs) this is the calling of God on us. I want to be like the disciples. It is so much more natural for me to just shove it off on someone else. Why don't we just tell them to take care of themselves? It's ridiculous for us to bear the burden for 20,000 people. They eat dinner today. The next morning they're going to want breakfast. There's no end to it. And do you ever feel that way? That if you actually start caring about your friends, if you actually start listening to their problems and let them get to you, there are so many needs So many deep problems. I mean, maybe all of us have a friend where as they begin sharing, the depth of their pain and brokenness goes so far beyond one Starbucks conversation. It goes to their childhood, to their parents, to their generational sins. And and you're like, how do you fix that? If I start to care, the dam will burst and I'll never get out from under the problems of other people. And so it's easier to just kind of not care at all. To pretend that everybody's happy, looking around this room and going, look, we have Harvest Community Church, a a really well-heeled, polished, middle-class, suburban church where everyone's doing well, and that's so not true. I'm I'm one of the pastors here, which means I get to know the real stories, and I know that as we peel the rug and look underneath, I've seen all the beetles that live under there. I know how broken the lives are in this place. And the truth is, it's easier to just go, well, everyone looks so happy. Let's not rock the boat. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the truth is, it is very broken. And if you start to care, it will crush you. The weight of human suffering and of all the people's needs around you will crush you. And your heart response will be to be just like the disciples say, can't they just take it? How can they be so hard? Just live. Do the right thing. Take care of your stuff. Pay your bills. Get off my back. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't tell them to take care of themselves. You take care of them. You care. You care. Because if you don't care, you won't understand me. So Jesus gives them this ridiculous, as if to drive the point further, I'm going to tell you how impossible this is going to be. Uh, Guys, why don't you go among the crowd and see how much food we got to work with? And so they go circulating in the crowd, and then they come back about an hour later. So, And here's Andrew going, hey, all we dug up, we bugged some little kid, took his lunch. We got two fish and five chunks of barley bread. That's all we've got. 
Now, the first few times that I read that, I was a little miffed. I was like, what? How could out of a crowd of 20,000, all they've got is a little boy's lunch? Now, there's a couple theories. One is that everybody else saw the disciples coming and asking for food, and they're like, hide my stash, man. I'm not going to share none of this. This is, this is for me. I planned ahead. I was smart. I'm not going to share my lunch with all these mopes who just ran out here. But I think another theory that holds water is that these people didn't come for a picnic. They were drawn to Jesus. They saw him leaving, and they said, we don't want to let this guy get away. So they just picked up whatever they had, and they ran. And it was an impromptu service that had gathered in this grassy field. So I thought I'd do a little experiment with you today. I want everyone in this room to rustle around in your pockets and in your purses and bags, pull out anything that's edible. Would you do that right now? Anything that's edible. Imagine that we were trapped here today and the only thing we could eat is what all of us have available. Not chewing gum, we're not going to swallow gum. Anything that's edible. Hold it up. Some of you shout out what you've got. What do you have? Snickers, samosas. What the? <laughs> Granola bar, what, what is it? Oh, airheads. Okay, so it's not exactly a well-bound. Somebody held up Listerine breath mint strips. What a nutritious meal that would be. So the message is, even in a group our size, if all we have to eat is what we brought with us to church service, it isn't going to be much, is it? And so here's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to make the case that what I'm asking you is absolutely impossible. It is not lost on him that he's asking them to care about things that no sane person could really care about. It's overwhelming. So why then does he tell us, you give them something to eat? Is he just trying to be annoying? Is he trying to prove to us how much stronger he is than we are? What is the message? Well, in fact, that is what he's trying to prove. When God calls us to care about impossible things, when he tells us to do things that to our estimation seem ridiculous, unfair to ask a a single person, what he's saying is, I never asked you to do it yourself. But if you tempt things that only you in your own power can do, how will you ever in your life see the power of God? All you will ever see is the power, resources, and resourcefulness of you. This really speaks to me because all my life I've prided myself. I've built my identity on being a resourceful guy. I always like to think of myself as the MacGyver of human relationships. I don't know how to pick a lock with a light bulb filament or a folded piece of chewing gum wrapper. But I feel like whatever life throws at me relationally, situationally, I pride myself on being able to get people through it. And as a result, too often in my life, All I've seen is the glory of Dave Lee, and it isn't much to look at. If I walk away from a counseling encounter saying, man, I said some good stuff, I was on, I was in the zone, that person will not be very greatly helped. Because my shallow human wisdom will not save them. It is when God calls us to impossible things that we're immediately confronted with how small we are, how pathetic our resources are, how impossible the situation when I look at what I have and what I'm being asked to do, there's no way to make it work. Philip said it right. To feed a crowd this size would take eight months' wages, approximately $24,000 of today's money to give them even a meager meal. I can't reconcile this, Lord. 
two fish, five loaves, 20,000. Something's wrong with your brain. And Jesus says, and this is his little test for them. I love what it says in John chapter 6, verses 5 to 6. This is John's account of the same story, but he gives us a little insight into the mind of Christ. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, there's a little test. When God calls you to do the impossible, he's watching to see how you respond. Will you do the math and walk away discouraged? Or will you do the right thing and say, Lord, I can't do it. You got to show up. Will we look inward and do the calculus? Or will we look upward and exercise our faith in God? Well, Philip's answer gives us his answer, right? His response. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not... So basically, Philip, when pressed with impossible things, goes to his Excel spreadsheet, pulls out his calculator, and proves mathematically that God is being absurd. Are you crazy? And Jesus looks at him and says, man, that is the wrong answer, guys. How long will it be before you grow some faith? When I tell you to do the impossible, it is to prove to you that the only way you're going to get out of this is to turn to the one for whom all things are possible. God does impossible things. He can do things in your life and in the lives of others that in your small mind and mine are just completely impossible. That's why they're called miracles, because they cannot be attributed to human resourcefulness. It's only explained by the supernatural, unbelievable power of God intersecting human life. I really believe that when God calls us to take responsibility for others, it's not to discourage us with how limited we are, but to keep tapping us in to how limitless he is. I love the stories told of George Mueller. Do you know who he is? He's a Prussian-born evangelist who developed such a deep heart for orphans. He ran an, a famous orphanage in London, but he never had much money to care for these kids. And in one famous story, the orphanage had run out of money. The children were all gathered for breakfast, seated at the tables. And I don't know if you feel that the weight of that responsibility, but seeing all these hungry children and you can't feed them, and they're all looking at you like, sir, we're so hungry. I, I, I don't know what I'd do in that situation. He knows the cupboards are empty, but he gathers these children together and he goes, let's give thanks for what we're about to eat. I don't know about you, but that's like crazy faith. I would call that almost child abuse. Why would you get these kids' hopes up, telling them, give thanks for food that doesn't exist, only to have them say amen and go, now kids, here's your imaginary pancakes. And your ma-. That's just not right. But George Mueller knew that in the face of this impossible situation, Jesus Christ still shows up and does the kind of thing he did in that little grassy field. He still does it. When he prayed, it wasn't wishful thinking. It was faith in action through prayer. And do you know what happened? No sooner had they said amen than there was a knock at the door. And it was the local baker saying he was fitfully dreaming the the night before, and God visited him in a dream and said, you must deliver a week's worth of bread to the orphanage. So he carried a truckload of bread to the orphanage and delivered it. And then by God's sovereignty and maybe some thumbtacks laid on the ground by George Mueller the night before, the milk truck wrecked right in front of the the, the orphanage, across the street. 
And the truck driver says, I can't do anything with this milk. It'll go bad while I'm waiting for another transport. Would, do your kids need some milk? Because I've got a whole truckload I've got to unload right now. And just like that, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 repeats itself in London, a modern city. Centuries removed from the time of Jesus Christ. And the question that I have for you is, do you really believe that God still does miracles? That in the face of impossible things, it is not reckless to hope in God, to attempt things that are ridiculous for a church of our size, if we were to say, we are going to bring the gospel to the entire Muslim world. You're like, shut up! What are you, crazy? But if God stirs it in us, do we have the faith to say that what seems impossible is absolutely possible. I'm going to give you one last principle here. The best way I could word it is God's plan, God's way. Simply doing things in the name of God is not licensed to do it however we would like. But I really believe that when we are doing God's work, it is exceedingly important that we follow Christ's example and do it God's way in God's time. I've seen a lot of unfortunate choices made by godly people because we, we come to believe, and I've been part of that. We've come to believe that because we love God and want to serve Him, we can just use our wits and anything that occurs to us is fair game. Well, that's not really true. God has a way of doing things, and often His way is actually not very intuitive to us. It's different from the way we would do it. Did you notice, for example, that He has everybody in the crowd of 20,000 sit in groups of 50s and 100s? What's that all about? Well, I thought about that for a while. I think it has to do with the way that He fed the crowd. He didn't do it like Moses in the desert, where bread and fish rained down from heaven instantly, and everybody was fed. He did it the slow, methodical way. He started breaking the fish and the loaves, and he's doing it one after another. He broke like 20,000 loaves. I mean, that's a lot of stuff to do. But he did it slowly. And then he would fill a basket, give it to one of his 12 disciples, and they would carry it to one of these grids of people, seated in groups of 50s and 100, and he would hand them the basket, and then instead of being the waiter, they would take that basket and hand it down the rows, and one person after another would hand the bread to each other. That's a ridiculously uh, um, slow and methodical way to do it. When if you're going to perform a miracle, why not just go, hey, everyone, look under your chair. Hey, there's a sack lunch under my chair. That would have been the much faster way to do a miracle. And if you're time-oriented and efficiency-oriented, Jesus is really a weird guy. But I think the reason he did it that way is because this is more than just food to fill the belly. He was using even this meal to foster a sense of community. I can't connect to 20,000 people, but sitting in an arbitrary group of 50 or 100, we're looking around and going, hey, this is kind of cool. What, what brought you here? Oh, you have leprosy? Stay over there. And, you know, and you're talking to each other, getting to know each other, handing food to one another, and this seems to be the way God loves to work. He doesn't like quick and easy and instant. He likes slow, methodical, human, touching, intimate kind of ministry. That's why I say don't always look for a way to save time. Do it faster. Do it easier. Do it more conveniently. So often the way God works, His plan unfolds in a way that makes us wonder, why would you do it that way? It's so much harder. 
It's so much harder. How much harder is it in youth ministry to really lead kids to Christ versus offer them an MP3 player in exchange for baptism? I I know that sounds horrifying to you. I know churches that bribe their teenagers with iPods if they would get baptized. And why do they do that? So the youth pastor and the ministry staff can boast, we had 18 youth conversions and baptisms this month. Does that sound like science fiction to you? Because it's happening right now. I know of of the stories, the churches that are doing that. What's easier? To post good numbers or to actually wrestle with a young kid's heart and lead them to the Savior. It's strange to me that God so often works that way. Inefficient, human, patient, but that's His way. And I want to remind you, God's plan must be had God's way. I just want to draw your attention to this and we'll close. When you look at the crowd's response to having been fed and eating their fill. This is what they did. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Looking back at a promise made to Moses in, in Genesis 18, or Deuteronomy 18, I'm sorry. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people, having been fed, they were saying to themselves, we cannot let this guy go. He's a walking bread basket. He's going to take care of us. He's going to lead us. He's going to give us everything our hearts desire. <clears throat> I don't say this to be disrespectful, but sometimes in, in my line of business, in our pastoral world, we, we have a phrase to describe the dynamic when you, are sh- when you show kindness to someone and they latch onto you. We call it gum on the shoe. Okay, gum on the shoe. Where you've shown a kindness to someone who's in need, and because you're the only one who's shown them kindness, they cling to you. And it's like when you have gum on your shoe, every step you take, it's still there, it clings to you. And I'm not saying that because we're irritated by people to show the tenacity when someone finally found someone who will help them. They hang onto your neck like you're a human life preserver. That's the nature of people. These people would not let go of Jesus. They wanted him, but not because he was a spiritual savior, not because they believed that he was the son of God, but because their bellies were full, and that felt better than when their bellies were empty. And they figured, if we can make a guy like this our king, maybe he will rid us of Roman oppression. Maybe he will be the king we always wanted, and he will restore the glory to Israel. They wanted to follow Jesus on their terms because they saw somehow in him and his way of life Something that they needed. I think there's a lot of people who are drawn to Jesus for a lot of wrong reasons. They believe that being faithful to Jesus is their ticket to finally landing a spouse. Do you know, I've got to tell you, I've met a lot of people who stopped coming to church after they got married. There are people who were really nice to me, very faithful in service, and then when the wedding was officiated, they disappeared. I really believe there are a lot of people who see in Jesus the ticket to the real deepest longing of their hearts. And once he delivers, he's no longer needed. Check your heart to see if perhaps there's some of that in your own heart. Because Jesus said, I'm not going to be your king 
in order to birth a new nation or stir up a revolution. That is not why I'm here. It's flattering that you all want to make me your next king, but that is not my mission. I will not do God's work this way. But I have come to seek and to save the lost, to hang on a cross, to rise again from the grave. His mission was clear to him. He had no confusion about the way God was going to use him. And I really believe that's important for us to remember because nothing derails Christian ministry faster than ministry success. And I believe in America today, there is a growing number of pastors who are becoming celebrity authors, much sought after communicators and conference speakers, even organizational leadership gurus, but they are forgetting how to shepherd God's people. They're famous. They're rich. Success has made them household names, even among unbelievers. But God's work is not done in the world's way. That's not to suggest that every pastor who's written a book is sinning. No. But I'm saying success more easily derails us than failure. It gets us going the wrong way and assuming, well, this is good, we're making money, people are coming, the crowd's growing, we must be doing something right. Not necessarily so. The real test is not whether people are happy, whether bellies are full and our name is getting known and people want to make us king, but the real test is whether God's plan is unfolding God's way through us. That's why we will not at harvest uncritically greet numerical growth as victory. Sometimes the growing of a church in its size is the death knell of that church's spiritual vitality. Sometimes. Don't assume that a bigger church is a better church. A richer church is a better church. Or whatever else you want to say. We will not measure success the way the world measures it. But we will cling to this. God's work will be done God's way even if it makes very little sense to us. Even if my ideas could improve on what God seems to want, we will do things His way. It's done. That's pretty much all I had to say this morning. I want to just review with you a couple things. This week, I believe that God, who is all-knowing, is going to knock on your door or ring your phone or tap your shoulder at times when you won't welcome it in your heart. You'll be in the middle of doing something and a friend, a needy friend will call you and it will be so tempting to send that call to voicemail. You'll be in the middle of a chore and your little child will pull on your leg and want you to turn on a DVD or play a board game. You're like, oh, come on! How am I supposed to get anything done with you little rodents? Always cling to me. I I know that feeling. But I'm going to challenge you this week. Pay attention to God. These are not just interruptions. They are invitations. And sometimes, if in your emptiness, you follow God's invitation, He will show up in ways that will amaze you and miracles will happen. Precisely because you have nothing to offer. I also want to ask you, this week, if a need presents itself, and everything in you is saying, if I start caring about that, I'm going to drown in this other person's problems. Why do you have so much need? 
Why are you always in crisis? What is wrong with you? And when you're tempted to be overwhelmed by it all, when you think even about Japan and the human suffering, if you saw the video of the tsunami and the waves just rolling across the countryside, destroying villages in its path, when you feel overwhelmed by all that and everything you says, push that away, stop caring about it, make that someone else's problem, but you know God is saying it's your burden to bear. Care about this. Take responsibility. Let him do that in you. Say, Lord, I don't know where this is going to take me, but I I yield. I will care about it. I will open up my heart, even though I feel like I'm going to lose myself. And because I have so little to give, I'm going to pray as if in my weakness, you are really going to be strength. Lastly, if we're going to do God's work, let's not presume that success will look a certain way. Sometimes the way God will use us will seem ridiculously inefficient, impractical, slow. Sometimes that's the way God works. And let's not just do God's work our way. Let's make sure that we know how he wants to do it, even if it runs against the grain of how we'd like to do it. I believe that every one of us in this room has a personal ministry. And as we think about the way Jesus did ministry, I pray that he will give you his heart. That even while your heart wants to close up and become hard, he will crack it open and soften it. That through you, Even today, miracles will keep happening. I really believe God still does miracles. I've witnessed it in my own life. And I think it would be exciting for you to see that at work too. Let's pray. You know, it's a funny thing. I think life consistently wants to shrink our hearts. Even as we get older, wiser, richer, more influential, even as God over time expands us as people, our hearts keep wanting to shrink. Maybe that's because the older you get, the more you awaken to how broken our world is. It overwhelms you. That's why the real message today is not that we are great, but that God is great. He still does impossible things. In fact, he's the only one around who ever could. We live in an impossible world, but we live with a God for whom nothing is impossible. Please remember that this morning as you think about the burdens all around you and the things pressing down on your heart right now. For God, nothing is impossible. Let's pray that this week as we walk through our lives, God would help us be alert and very sensitive to Him. Pay attention to what God is doing in your life this week. And let's pray this prayer. If you interrupt my life this week? If you impose upon me with a burden too great for my heart, change my heart right now so that I will respond with you. 
Just pray that right now. Lord, don't let my heart close up. Open it. Open it. Show me your power. Let's go to God in prayer for that right now. Lord, the truth is that the more we open our eyes, the more we want to shut them again. It's all too much. What are we supposed to do in the face of something like an earthquake or a tsunami? Thousands dead, towns destroyed. What are we supposed to do hearing things like that? How on earth can we possibly care about something so much bigger than us? Lord, we just confess in our hearts that the more we hear, the more our hearts want to shrink and close up and guard ourselves. And so we pray in dangerous faith. Make us more like you today. Crack open our hearts. Teach us to care about things we want to not care about. Lord, we admit that we have never had anything to offer the world. It's never been about what we have. We have even less than two fish and five loaves, but you have everything that is needed. So I pray, God, that you will give us faith like Jesus had, faith like George Mueller had, faith that believes when the eyes tell us belief is foolish. I pray you would especially stir in the hearts of some in this room right now who you are moving and calling to impossible things, things too great for one person. I pray, Lord, that you would sweep over their hearts right now with a willingness to believe in you and not in themselves. This week, Lord, as we walk Make us very attentive to you. Let every interruption be an invitation. Every burden be an opportunity for us to see you do what we know we cannot do. Make us a faith-filled church. And thereby one that will be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.